The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We are excited today to talk to Steve Fiore. Steve is the director of the Cognitive Sciences Laboratory and professor with the University of Central Florida's Cognitive Science Program in the Department of Philosophy and School of Modeling, Simulation, and Training. His primary area of research is the interdisciplinary study of complex collaborative cognition and the understanding of how humans interact socially and with technology. He is recipient of UCF's Luminary Award in 2019 as recognition for his work having a significant impact on the world, and UCF's Reach for the Stars Award in 2014 as recognition for bringing international prominence to the university. He has contributed to working groups for the National Academies of Sciences, National Assessment of Educational Progress, and Program for International Student Assessment. He is co-author of a book on accelerating expertise and is co-editor of volumes on shared cognition, macrocognition in teams, distributed training, and team cognition. And he served as host for the 10th International Conference on Naturalistic Decision-Making. So welcome, Steve, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, philosophy and modeling and simulation and training and education and individuals and teams, your, your work has covered a lot of ground. I wonder if uh, you could just uh, walk us through your path to becoming uh, the director at CSL and, and just the highlights is what we're looking for. So this is uh, really more a story of being an employee of the University of Central Florida. So I started there uh, over 20 years ago and uh, was going down there primarily to study groups and teams with the, the Orlando community at the Naval Air Warfare Center and with researchers at the Team Performance Lab at the University of Central Florida. So it was kind of more like a postdoctoral appointment, but this was a, a very exciting university in the way they thought about research and the way they encouraged their faculty to be entrepreneurial. So I started doing all kinds of research, all kinds of collaborations, interdisciplinary types of research. So it was more about the Institute for Simulation and Training where a lot was going on, where I started to collaborate with people across a number of different disciplines. So I became more interdisciplinary and I stopped referring to myself as a cognitive psychologist, which is where my primary degree is in, and more as a cognitive scientist because of the collaborations I was forming. And thus I formed the Cognitive Science Lab to more accurately represent the kind of work that I was doing. And it was a, a general enough label that I could still pursue a broad area of concepts depending on what were my research interests. So cognitive science at UCF encompasses a number of different fields, a number of different disciplines, a number of different departments. And the lab is really a place where we can come together, pursue research, pursue grants, bring students together, and just think about interesting ideas. Right. So, um, so where in this interdisciplinary approach uh, do you see NDM fitting in, or is, is that not the right question to ask? No, I, I think it, it's appropriate because NDM itself uh, similarly 
arose out of a lot of people in cognitive psychology. And I think uh, they were cognitive psychologists who wanted to study phenomena with different disciplinary lenses. And probably one of the main differences with cognitive psychology and NDM was obviously the study of cognition in the natural world and in uncertain, uncontrolled environments as opposed to laboratory environments. And cognitive science itself wanted to look at phenomena with a broader disciplinary lens or set of lenses, I should say. So they incorporated uh, computer science, neuroscience, philosophy, psychology, linguistics, but the probably the biggest overlap would be with anthropology. So one of the exciting things cognitive science did was bring in anthropologists uh, also to add to this disciplinary mix. And anthropologists really taught people who study cognition the importance of embedded research and understanding phenomena in context. And I think that's where there's significant overlap with NDM researchers. And that's the need to understand the phenomena in a grounded way to embed oneself in that environment to truly understand the phenomena that they're trying to improve. And so, so was, um, was this approach uh, familiar to you before you came to UCF or uh, is this something that you became aware of as you were getting further engaged? I was not at all familiar mm -hmm. with any of this. So when I was in graduate school, I was a traditional cognitive psychology student. So studying uh, everything uh, the past hundred years of research in cognition. But because I became interested in how collaboration, how group work uh, influences cognition, I started to take classes outside of cognitive psychology and uh, was kind of a heretic for taking social psychology classes, for taking business classes, organizational science classes. So I already had this interdisciplinary interest. And when I came to UCF, I was primarily working with people in human factors because they didn't have a cognitive program. It was human factors researchers. And it was a natural stepping point from cognitive psychology to human factors because a, a lot of what they studied in human factors had to do with more complex issues of cognition. So the cognitive engineering and decision-making group was a natural place. They were studying complex cognition. They were studying team cognition. And as you well know, there's uh, an outgrowth of cognitive engineering and decision-making is NDM and their creation of their own community. So I learned all of that probably by stepping into the human factors community and then realizing the human factors community had this association with NDM and started attending uh, their conferences. I guess it was 2003 and it was actually because they invited my advisor to be a keynote at the 2003 conference and they asked me to introduce him to the uh, community to the NDM community. So that was actually my first conference back in 2003. Right. And I think um, one of the reasons I was invited is this is kind of a one of those funny episodic memories. My first human factors conference back in 1999, uh, I was in a symposium with Gary Klein was one of the speakers. Danielle Serfati was the chair and Gary Klein was speaking right before me, and I had a little bit of idea who he was. So as you can imagine, this was my first uh, conference to that community. 
Uh, so I was a bit nervous about that, but went up and gave a talk about some expert novice kind of research that I had been doing looking at pilots. And it turns out Gary knew my advisor. Uh, they had had some conversations a few years ago, and it turns out Gary got his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh, where I got my PhD. Gary's advisor, it turns out, was someone on my dissertation committee. Uh, so there was some overlap already. So I started up some conversations with Gary. We were both interested in problem solving. So we had a lot of nice discussions early on. Yep, it's a, a small world, I suppose. I, I, I want to go back to what you said about uh, you started taking classes elsewhere um, uh, or sort of outside your uh, your core program. D do you recall, was there any, was this uh, sort of a reactionary thing about the things you were seeing in your own program or just sensing that something interesting is going on over there, so let me go check it out? Or was this, uh, do, you, do you have any particular moments where you realized um, this core program of mine is probably not all I should be looking at. Yeah, it all, it, I, I can pinpoint it to a seminar I was taking on problem solving. Uh, Jim Voss, noted cognitive psychologist at the University of Pittsburgh, he, ha he taught for the program a, a course on thinking and problem solving. One of the paper topics that uh, he recommended was on whether individuals or groups are better problem solvers. And I found that idea intriguing because my advisor's research was in what's called the verbal overshadowing paradigm. And that whole line of research tries to examine the degree to which verbalization of nonverbal cognition inhibits cognitive processing, things like insight problem solving, things like visual memory. And because groups by definition have to communicate that is verbalized with each other it was kind of a, a mini aha moment in the sense that well if we know there are instances when verbalization of cognition interferes with and inhibits it what's going on with groups and teams that is because they're interacting all the time and verbalizing is it possible that they're affecting cognitive processing so that will set the stage for that seminar paper and i started reading more uh, outside of cognitive psychology, because group research was primarily in social psychology. And uh, what happened is I heard that some of the social psychologists sometimes give a special topic seminar on groups and teams. And this was Dick Moreland and John Levine. They noted social psychologists who had been studying groups their entire career. And I actually got on an elevator one day with John Levine. We worked in the same building. And I said, I hear you sometimes teach a seminar in groups and teams. I'm interested in that. Would you be willing to offer that seminar again? And he looked at me, he didn't really know me. He says, yeah, you know, I, we haven't done that, taught that in a while, sure, let me talk to Dick. So they offered the course and I took it and started reading more, started taking more social psychology just to understand uh, human interaction beyond simple co cognitive studies. And my first book uh, with Eduardo Salas on team cognition, uh, actually the opening chapter of that book is based uh, in large part on the paper I wrote for that seminar with um, on groups and teams that was given by John Levine and Dick Moreland. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm always curious about the sort of seminal moments that stick out in people's mind about when they had these aha moments about their academic career and 
and and that those moments really can can shape a whole trajectory. Um, I wonder if you can uh, just kind of describe the scope of the work at CSL these days. What what all um, what all is the group working on? Well, quite a bit. I think um, there it's easiest to describe based upon the, the funded projects. There's a number of funded and unfunded projects. Uh, I have a, a new grant with DARPA in their artificial social intelligence program. So uh, obviously the federal government is very interested in artificial intelligence and its applications. Uh, one of the areas they're pushing now though is, can we get artificial intelligence to understand how to collaborate? That is how to work in the context of a team. So what we're focusing on in our proposal was distinguishing between teamwork and task work, which is an old idea actually coming out of the original NDM research, uh, going back to the USS Vincennes incident, natural decision-making under stress, uh, where they teased apart task work that is doing the actual uh, job, meeting the objectives and goals and the teamwork needed to do that. So I've used that distinction to say, well, AI is getting very good at task work, but what it needs to learn is teamwork. That is the actual collaborative processes engaged by a team to facilitate the more complex tasks they're trying to accomplish. So this whole program is based upon those kinds of ideas. We're focusing right now on theory of mind, which is an old idea in psychology. Essentially, can you understand accurately the mental state of another person? And that's really the first phase of this uh, project in which we're engaged, that is, can we develop artificial intelligence that is capable of making mental state attributions about another person? Uh, so that's a obviously a very challenging one. It's very interdisciplinary. We've got computer scientists, we've got uh, cognitive scientists, we've got neuroscientists, and it's a different kind of DARPA program in that we're all collaborating. Usually DARPA programs are structured to be more competitive, but this program director wants to try to see if we can get us all to work together given the nature of the challenges and the degree to which psychologists can influence computer scientists and AI researchers and help them better understand what it means to be artificial, artificially socially intelligent. And if you want to ask any questions about that one, go ahead, or I can describe some of the other ones. <laughs> Keep going, let's come back. Okay, so I, I have an, another project uh, that is looking at collaborative cognition, uh, but focusing more on the embedded nature of the interaction. And this is uh, based upon research that's been becoming more popular in cognitive science. I refer to it kind of as neo-behaviorism, where they're now paying a lot of attention to the body and the movements of the body. And there, obviously there have been different disciplines such as uh, communication group studies that have never ignored this, but in psychology, uh, we tended to ignore the body. And in cognitive science, there's an entire new area of, of embodied cognition inactive, embedded kind of cognition where they're recognizing the role of context and the role of interaction in helping us understand cognition and helping people execute cognition. And with one of my collaborators, who is actually a computer scientist that uses various kinds of sensors to understand buildings and architecture and how sensor readings can, for example, help make a building more green. I, I asked him one afternoon, I says, you know, can any of these sensors actually track humans to a very close degree, uh, track their movement, track their body temperature? 
And he says, yeah, I, I don't see why not. So we jokingly refer to this as predator vision. If you remember the movie nice. Predator, uh, where it sees bodies based upon body temperature. So we proposed this grant where we have a room outfitted with multiple forms of sensors. And we're going to have people working on very complex problems but we're not only going to be doing your traditional kind of org science assessment of teamwork or your traditional psychological assessment of cognition, their embedded interactions, their use of cognitive artifacts, their vocalizations are all going to be collected. And we're going to see the degree to which we can converge on a better understanding of what's going on by doing these kind of complementary assessments to see the degree to which body movement synchronize or not and how that may or might relate to things like group cohesion and team cognition. Yeah, the interdisciplinary piece is definitely coming through. Um, just just one more, I, I, I do wanna follow up on the first piece. So the uh, your, your comments about theory of mind, um, where are you seeing the potential to uh, sort of breakthrough in this project in, in places that others might have been stuck in the past? I, I think it really has to do with uh, how it is that we engage in theory of mind in the first place. And a, a number of years ago, uh, on one of my other grants, we were looking at human robot teaming. And my piece of this very large project, this was one of these multi-university collaborative technology alliances that the Department of Defense funds, so UCF was in charge of the human robot teaming component. Carnegie Mellon was in charge of perception and dexterous mobility. University of uh, Pennsylvania had also vision components uh, associated with the project. And we at UCF were looking at human robot teaming as the component of the, this larger grant. I had a small slice of that, that is the social cognitive components of teamwork. So we carved out of this trying to understand theory of mind because we realized that if robots are truly gonna become members of a team, they need to engage in the kinds of cognitive and collaborative processes that we normally and naturally do. And theory of mind seemed like one that hadn't really been addressed very deeply. So we started to look more closely into that. And the more I read about theory of mind, I was really surprised there had not been a lot of progress since I was in graduate school. So I'd been out of graduate school around this time uh, over a decade, and there still were a, a couple of dominant theories. And the only new and interesting theory uh, was actually coming out of philosophy and cognitive science. And this was someone with whom I was collaborating at UCF. This was uh, Sean Gallagher, who is a cognitive science-oriented philosopher and he had ideas coming out of embodied and inactive cognition theory as to how theory of mind might take place. And he referred to it as an interaction-based theory. Uh, but being a philosopher, he never really operationalized it very well. So what we did was we tried to operationalize, well, what does it mean to have this interaction uh, focus on theory of mind? And what it boils down to is social cues and social affordances. And that is the degree to which the cues in the environment actually afford social cognition. And the social affordances are, are really based upon Gibsonian kind of affordances. That is, the object helps you understand what you're supposed to do with it. So we just took that analogy and expanded it into social cognitive theory, with the idea being that we naturally understand what is on the mind of another based upon these bodily interactions. 
So we set up a number of studies to look at this. And one of the key issues that we wanted to explore was, is the information in the environment itself about social cognition, or do you have to engage in any information processing to make these theory of mind attributions? So one of the first studies was uh, one of the traditional speeded, unspeeded decision-making tasks. So we set it up such that they viewed a social interaction, that is the subject viewed a social interaction, and they had to make a mental state attribution about what was going on. And what we did was we gave them time to make that decision, or we uh, made them make their decision right away. And what was of interest to me was, are the differences based upon speeded or unspeeded uh, decision-making, is, are they more accurate and or do they make anything, uh, make different kinds of attributions based upon more reflective decision-making? And it turns out that there are no differences. People are still making the same kind of mental state attributions. So the accuracy isn't unchanged uh, when they make the speeded decision. So this was some of the evidence that we used to say that the information is in the environment itself. That is, the so, there's enough social affordances for people to make these mental state attribution. And this is critical because if the information is the, in the environment itself and you can identify what are the cues people are using, then it becomes a much more tractable problem to train a machine how to recognize these kinds of social cues that help humans make theory of mind attributions. So that's where we've been trying to take this research is to try to understand what are the social cues that drive social affordances. Very cool. I agree. This is so interesting. I um, hey, I wanted to mention that I also did some graduate work at Pitt and worked with Jim Voss. So oh, you did? I did. Yeah. What was that? Gosh, nineteen eighty nine. Okay, so that was yeah, that was right before I started. I started in ninety two. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very cool. So he, yeah, Jim Voss is a great guy. He's been very very influential. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the NDM meeting you hosted. So I attended that 10th NDM meeting and it was a, a great meeting. Um, but having hosted meetings myself, I just wondered if you um, would reflect on, do, do you feel that being the host of the meeting and bringing all those folks together and thinking about NDM in a different way has shaped your work or the way you think about the community? A little bit. I think uh, one of the issues to recognize is I have been involved in organizing conferences before and I'd been involved in interdisciplinary organizations. Uh, So one of them was the Interdisciplinary Network for Group Research, uh, where we bring together researchers from psychology, from org sciences, from schools of communication, from computer science, all around this issue of understanding groups and teams. So I had that experience and to me, NDM was another kind of interdisciplinary community. And with that, one of the issues that I I really thought was important for NDM was cybersecurity. So remember this was being planned around 2010 and given the work that cognitive engineering and the allied fields of NDM had been doing, I really didn't think there was enough attention on cybersecurity. I thought that this was gonna be one of the grand challenges of our time. And the only research I had seen at that time was really coming out of computer science and it was primarily software firewalls. And I thought this was something that NDM really should take on. 
Uh, I wanted the expertise from the people who had been studying complex cognition to turn their lens, so to speak, on cybersecurity. So we had uh, keynotes by cybersecurity researchers. We had panels by cybersecurity people in the hopes that we could get others interested and excited about and get this now being a new focal area for cognitive engineering for NDM such that we could bring more of the human focus on cybersecurity because it is much more of a general problem than just building a better firewall. And I've, I've tried to continue that. Uh, so a big part of what I do is network building and advocacy uh, because there's more problems than I have time. And I just try to encourage people to pursue these kinds of things. So I've been an advocate of cybersecurity research by social scientists, by cognitive scientists uh, for uh, ever since then, even if I'm not doing that research myself. So I think that that's the biggest influence and I view some of the connections that were formed at that meeting uh, to continue with this kind of advocacy to try to bring people together to tackle this more complex problem. Ah, so that is really nice. And I'm glad to hear you articulate that. I um, had not thought of using these meetings to shape the community. Um, I've always thought of them as a way to just kind of uh, help the community better articulate what they're already doing. So um, that, that's an interesting and, and kind of a cool contribution to say this is a really important problem and NDM ought to be paying attention here. Yeah, I think this is something that I've learned over the years is um, I, a colleague of mine who, with whom I worked early on at UCF, he used the uh, term stewardship. And he, he said, I, I'm not necessarily leading a field, but I'm engaging in stewardship, which is kind of helping direct where a field should go. And I like that idea. And I, I learned early on uh, that too often scientists get embedded in their own area of research and don't think about the bigger picture. And because I had been uh, communicating with, interacting with people in the federal government, people at the policy level and some of my other work, I realized that they, they want assistance, they want help. And the federal government tries to solve complex problems. And we scientists, it's our job to understand complex problems. So I saw it as kind of a natural bridge to try and engage in this kind of stewardship where we help people understand these problems that are out there. And it's kind of a win-win situation because uh, there is funding for these problems. So by helping the community see what's on the horizon and start thinking about it, the more likely that community is gonna get the funding needed to help solve those problems. So um, you, speaking of, uh, of being the, the interdisciplinarian, uh, you're the kind of person who enjoys a lively debate. I've uh, been around you enough to, to see you enjoy sort of getting into the mix. Um, I, I'm wondering uh, if you're seeing any any trends, you know, either in the cognitive research landscape or, or other allied landscapes that uh, really right now are just kind of giving you the feeling that you want to get on the debate stage and sort of uh, you know, have it out. Um, so are you seeing trends out there that, that really just you want to you want to get in the mix on? Sure. I, I think uh, but one important caveat is uh, the debates in which I engage are usually more for fun <laughs> in the sense that I'll try to take whatever is the contrarian opinion to the group with, I, with whom I find myself uh, because I just 
like hearing what other people think and it helps sharpen my own thinking by taking the opposite side. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just because you hear me debate one point doesn't necessarily mean I'm wedded to that That's... point. It just happened to be. So for example, if I'm with NDM folks, I'll give them a hard time about lack of control in their studies and how can we really understand phenomena and how can we understand generalizability by doing this kind of embedded research. And if I'm with psychologists and experimental researchers, I'm saying, how are we ever gonna understand the real world if you're just having people learn lists of words? Uh, so that's kind of how I started down that route, just to hear their ideas about uh, contrarian opinions, but as far as the, the really controversial topics and the interesting topics now, I think it does uh, boil down to what are the prominent theories coming out of cognitive research. And this is again, I, I owe to hanging out with philosophers and cognitive science types because uh, as you may know, cognitive psychology has been dominated by the information processing theory of cognition, where the view was that the the brain is like a computer. There's input, there's processing, and there's output. And that pretty much drove all of the experiments that drove all the theorizing. And then when I started hanging out with philosophers, they, they said, well, you know, that's not the only way to think about cognition. And they introduced me to this idea of embodied cognition, which talks about the role of the body in cognition, with the point being that if you think of information processing as something the brain does and creates cognition, it ignores the role of the body and it ignores the role of the body's interaction with the environment as playing a role in cognition. So I started reading more about that and I became a disciple of this embodied and active cognition. And as you know, the most uh, annoying disciples are the ones that came originally from the other side. So I was trained and born into information processing theory left that cult and now I'm part of the embodied and active extended embedded cognition theorists. And it's been interesting to sit back and see cognitive psychology evolve because when I first learned about this, um, cognitive psychology was not at all on board. They were still studying traditional forms of information processing theory. And it's only been, I'd say, in the last five or so years that you're more likely to see embodied cognition theory and inactive cognition theory show up in traditional psychological uh, kinds of journals. And in fact, I, I just gave a keynote to the learning sciences community, which is another interdisciplinary group uh, where you have people coming from a number of different traditions thinking about learning and cognition and at that keynote, I, I talked about this notion of what we refer to as 4E cognition. I was invited to try to stimulate their thinking such that they would understand what's going on in cognitive science and the role of the body that is embodied cognition, how that shapes the mind, how the interaction with the world shapes cognition, and in fact, will shape learning, how embeddedness, uh, you may know of situated cognition and situated learning, that's all part of 4E theory. So that's one of the debates that we'll often have is, uh, can you ignore the body? Can you ignore the environment when you think about cognition? So that, that tends to produce lively debates. And depending upon the audience, I will take one side or the other, uh, or depending upon the people with whom I'm having a beer after a conference, I'll take one side or the other just to see uh, what they think about a particular topic. So I think that's really the most lively debate because it gets to the core of what do we mean by cognition but another one is 
how are we truly going to create artificial intelligence without understanding these more complex concepts of self and consciousness? And uh, this gets to core cognitive research about things like episodic memory, the sense of self, autobiographical memory, uh, the role of story in understanding the self. So I think these are really complicated and controversial topics. And I think that's going to be some of the new exciting directions. And in fact, it's a, it's a new project in which I'm engaged is, can you develop episodic memory in an artificial agent? And if so, what are the implications of that for creating something more like artificial general intelligence? Because my argument is once a machine has episodic memory, you're taking it on a path of learning not only context, but also interactions. And by building upon that, it, you're taking it on a path where it's going to potentially have a sense of self. And I think these are the kinds of precursors that are, that are needed for conscious awareness. So these are, these are the kinds of deep questions that are much more fun to have over a beer than over a podcast. But these are the <laughs> kinds of questions that uh, I like to ponder. And as I said, I, I'd like to get the field to think about because uh, it's incredibly complex and you need large teams of researchers to tackle these kinds of questions. Well, let me be first uh, to say that I'm actually drinking beer now, so I consider this uh, to be <laughs> happening at the same time. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, those are those are huge questions. Where do you, you know, other than individual projects and maybe some of these, you know, multi-institutional uh, collaborations, where do you see these sorts of um, uh, questions being asked and, and attempted to be answered? Well, the, the first is uh, really to develop a problem space about some of these more complex questions. So with regard to this issue of episodic memory and artificial intelligence, uh, because I interact with people in the policy community, one of the arguments I'll make is, well, you can't really fund research until you get a better understanding of the problem. So with that project, what we're trying to do is elicit um, in ways not unlike cognitive task analysis uh, to try to elicit from various practitioners, from various experts in AI and computer science and cognitive science, what would it mean for an AI to have episodic memories, to have episodic reasoning capabilities? And from eliciting knowledge from hundreds of stakeholders, uh, the goal would then be to see what they think is the problem space, from that build up a more strategic view of that problem space, see where the communities are thinking, where they're moving, and then from that try to identify what are the interesting gaps that by bringing these people together, by throwing a few million dollars at it, or if you're a larger agency, tens of millions of dollars at it, to get them to try to solve some of those kinds of problems. So that's a, that's a privileged position you're in to be able to um, have those kinds of conversations, not only on the research side, but the policy side. Is that, um, is that something that you've pursued as a, as a position for yourself? Or is that something that, um, you know, be, being the director of, uh, of an organization like you are enables you? Or how do you get yourself in the door, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, it, 
it probably goes back even before uh, psychology and my PhD. And that's just because I was in the business world before I decided to get a PhD in cognitive psychology. So I was in marketing and uh, I already knew how to network. I already knew how to communicate with people. And when I uh, decided to pursue a degree in cognitive psychology, I already had those kinds of skills that I, uh, I think you don't necessarily acquire in graduate school. And as part of that, I became active in the Association for Psychological Science. And then I became president of the Graduate Caucus for the Association for Psychological Science. And from that, I sat in on their executive committee meetings and I would listen to the leaders of psychology talk about these kinds of issues. So I, through observational learning and through contributing to that, it was just something I started to do. And actually, um, when working with uh, Robert Hoffman, probably about 15 years ago, when Robert had an idea to create what was then called the Florida Alliance for the Study of Expertise, he wanted to bring together IHMC, Florida State University, Neil Charnas, Anders Erickson, University of Central Florida, Peter Hancock, Eduardo Salas, and others who study expertise and create this alliance of people. So he had this idea, but um, you know, honestly, I don't think he really had the, the policy perspective on how to leverage that. And these were things I had already been thinking about and doing in some of my own reading. So Robert and I had this nice partnership where he was able to develop the scientific questions and I was able to shape it in such a way that to convince funders that by bringing this alliance together, we're gonna to be able to help them solve really complex problems. So having those kinds of conversations with people at the National Science Foundation led to having conversations with people at the National Academies of Sciences. And what I've learned over the years is you know, they, they want input from the scientific community. They value input from stakeholders, and it's just a matter of not being afraid to reach out and talk to them and to try to understand what are the problems they're trying to solve. And given uh, my agility in networking, it's like, okay, you know, here's someone you should talk to. They really understand this. And by bringing those kinds of people together, uh, it's a it's a natural bridging, natural boundary spanning that I think is uh, something that all academics can do if they realize that they were allowed to and they weren't too bashful. That is an excellent lesson um, and an excellent example. Uh, but now you've got me wondering about this career switch. So uh, so walk us through that. Um, you, you could have been a uh, a, a Madison Avenue uh, marketeer, it sounds like, but uh, at some point you decided to switch. What what motivated you? Well, it's, it's even worse than that. I, I could have been in the computer field uh, starting in the late, uh, late 80s and early 90s, uh, so I'd probably be a multimillionaire by now had I stayed in that. So I was working in marketing for uh, a company called the Computer Learning Center, and this was a company actually started by IBM in the 1960s. And when IBM invented the computer, so to speak, they realized that there wasn't enough people who understood computers coming out of college. So they created the Computer Learning Center to help uh, educate a new workforce. 
to teach them about computer programming, to teach them about computer operations. So it was what we referred to as proprietary education. So it wasn't your traditional university. It wasn't really Votech, uh, but it was like vocational education. So I worked for them in their marketing department and uh, I was helping develop uh, advertising, marketing campaigns, working with their salespeople because their salespeople were essentially trying to recruit new students. But the connection to cognition was IBM had created what they referred to as the programming aptitude test. And that programming aptitude test was essentially an assessment of a kind of individual differences having to do with visual spatial thinking, logical reasoning. And because I worked with the marketing and sales department, part of that was assessing people who are interested in taking um, and getting their certificates and degrees in from the computer learning center, assessing their aptitudes. So we had to administer this in the department to get a sense of, you know, do they really have an affinity for programming? And in this case, it was, wow, they were really good at logical thinking or they're very good at math. So uh, there, it was kind of a, a convergence of things where uh, I was intrigued by that, but at the same time, I was getting bored with marketing. Hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be on a management fast track where I got to shadow the CEO of the company. And I was seeing what he did every day in his day-to-day -day life. And I was thinking to myself, my God, this is boring. Do I really want to spend the next 20 years of my life just to do what he does? So I started talking to people and it, it turns out that one of the salespeople with whom I worked was quitting and going to get a degree in what he called IO, industrial organizational psychology. And I had never taken a psychology class in my life. So I was talking to him. He says, oh, you're interested in cognitive psychology. I said, I am. He says, yeah, they study things like logical reasoning, memory, thinking. And I says, yeah, well, I didn't even know that that was an actual degree because again, I'd never taken a psychology class. So I did some research and I just said, I want to become a cognitive psychologist. And I never looked back. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to go any further back because we'll get another uh, right turn maybe, but um, yeah, that, that's great. Uh, you've mentioned a couple people along the way who've kind of influenced uh, how you think about uh, the world. Um, I wonder if, if, there are any others on your list that you haven't mentioned? Well, I think you can't be an academic without um, talking about the role of your advisor and how they shaped your thinking. So um, my advisor, Jonathan Schooler, really uh, a strong intellect. And he, he what he taught me is, you know, don't be afraid to ask any question and that's both literatively and figuratively. And um, don't be afraid to question everyday assumptions. So part of what his research is, um, is about looking at everyday phenomena. And uh, with Jonathan, um, I sometimes jokingly refer to him as the Jerry Seinfeld of science, in the sense that he'd be like, have you ever wondered why and he asked this question that's really obvious, but no one has an answer. So one of the uh, examples I remember uh, extensively was, he says, you know, have you ever 
wondered why it is that you can read an entire page of a book and realize that although you've read it, you haven't comprehended any of it. And he says, you know, sometimes you'll just zone out. So you're reading, you're still reading, but you have no awareness of what you did. So, you know, he had this kind of like aha moment and he decided to study it. And he referred to it initially as zoning out and being an excellent experimental psychologist. He started developing ways to study this. And you all probably know that now as the mind wandering paradigm. So his initial insight about why is it that we zone out when reading has led into a huge area now referred to as mind wandering. And uh, he helped create this field just because of this kind of aha moment where there's a new paradigm that's studied by psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers uh, that's now referred to as mind wandering. And why is it that we do this and how does it happen? So that, you know, that's it's impressive. And he did the same thing with verbal overshadowing, the phenomena to which I referred to earlier, where what is the relationship between language and thought? And although there had been long debates about that in philosophy, uh, he took it to task and he started looking at this relationship much more closely and verbal overshadowing itself took on a life of its own outside of him. And the, the point here is, you know, most people get associated with uh, an area that they may have created and they stick with it their entire life. But he was more of the type that, you know, he could create it, do a lot of re research in it and establish it and then let it go, let it loose to the wild. Like it's a child, you know, kicking it out of the nest. So he did that with um, verbal overshadowing and then was zoning out, which became mind wandering. So I think that that's an important lesson to learn, particularly for academics who tend to get entrenched in their own way of thinking and sticking with a particular paradigm their entire career. Uh, he was much more of the of the mindset, you know, what are interesting ideas that I can pursue? And he would let the ideas take them where they did. And that's why I tend to be all over the map and more of a dilettante, more of a jack of all trades, master at none, because I just like to pursue interesting questions, get on the teams with the people that can help me answer them and you know do some research in that area and if i want to continue i can continue but if not i can move on to something else excellent so he is your uh he's your influence for for spreading yourself as as far as you can yes just a a deep thinker and he 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 wasn't really a dilettante in, in that sense, because when he would get into an area, uh, he would read deeply and read broadly to become an expert in that area. So it's not like he was just doing this superficial shallow. And um, so that was an important lesson. And when I got into a new area, uh, we now refer to as the science of team science. I took that to heart. And um, this was back around 2006 or 2007 where I just uh, went deep into a whole new set of literature uh, from the philosophy of science, from science policy, uh, because I realized that no one who studies teams had ever studied scientific teams. And this was a huge gap that I thought needed to be filled. So I wrote my first paper in 2008 about that. And there had been growing interest in Washington about this problem. The people at the National Cancer Institute had been creating a field that they 
became known as the science of team science. So I wrote that paper and sent it to them and I said, hey, I can help. So we created um, a conference, an annual conference, and now we've created uh, an interdisciplinary scholarly organization, the International Network for the Science of Team Science. And it's just, it's an example of, you know, when you see a problem, find the right people who are interested in this problem, find the people in the government who are interested in this problem and make something happen. You know, this this is one of the pressing issues uh, about which I'm very passionate now. It's how can we improve problem solving for these grand challenges we're facing around the world? And I think the only way we're going to be able to solve these problems is to improve the teamwork in which these people are engaged. So that's part of what the science of team science is doing. So Steve, I um, when I was at Pitt, my, the favorite seminar I ever I took was from Jonathan Schooler. Um, he, yeah, I, I completely agree. He had such an interesting mind and I, I really appreciated how he would, we would read these seminal works and then he would find this piece in there and frame a question around it that everyone else just kind of skipped over and assumed. And we'd have these amazing discussions. Um, so, and I remember his talk about um, uh, zoning out at the NDM meeting, but I didn't realize he was your advisor. I didn't realize that connection until now. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it you know, that he had that ability to see something that's, you know, that's why I jokingly refer to him as the Jerry Seinfeld of science, because he would see something that everyone had completely ignored and right. uh, realized there's this fundamental scientific philosophical issue uh, that we've ignored. And um, in graduate school, he, he took on consciousness when it, well, I should say when I was in graduate school, he took on consciousness. And, and now it's, it's common for scientists to talk about consciousness, but back in the nineties, that was not the case. You know, it was, it was this area that uh, you were crazy if you were a scientist and you tried to understand it. So he got funding to have a conference that was turned into a book called The Scientific Approaches to Understanding Consciousness. And you know he wasn't afraid to take that on. And he realizes that this was too important of a problem for scientific fields to ignore. And now, as I said, you know, it's common for people to study consciousness where uh, back in the 1990s, people would have thought you were crazy. Very cool. Very cool. So I wanted to, so you're kind of reflecting on when you were a grad student. I, so you're in a role now where you interact with grad students or people very early in their careers. And I just wondered what is, and, and also people from lots of different disciplines. So I wondered what is surprising to you in the kind of reactions you get as you introduce folks to NDM models and methods and this way of thinking? I think it, it really depends on what is their background already. Uh, for, for some who are coming from a, a traditional disciplinary background, it's hard for them to appreciate uh, what it is that NDM tries to do. And, and you know, I'll stick with the, the natural part uh, and I'll, I'll make a case that it's really the influence of anthropology, ethnomethodology uh, that helped NDM accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. So whether NDM appreciates the historical roots of what they do now with cognitive task analysis, you know, it certainly was influenced by people who were trying to study uh, real world work. And although anthropologists were doing it, not necessarily for work, uh, but just to understand uh, people in their embedded settings, I think that if I try to explain that to someone from psychology, they, they don't get it. 
they don't understand it or they don't appreciate it, but because I, I teach students from lots of different disciplines in my seminars, it, it resonates more naturally with some of them who are coming from sociology or anthropology or the humanities. They, they understand it much more clearly. But I will say, I think that there's been a shift um, where even psychologists are coming to appreciate that laboratory research is not everything it's cracked up to be. You know, it's, it's good to answer certain questions, but it's not going to solve some of these problems. Uh, that are the real world kinds of pressing problems. But the other shift I think that's making people appreciate NDM more is recognition in what's referred to as use-inspired science. And that's uh, an idea that we shouldn't think about basic versus applied science as being this kind of dichotomy or even a continuum. Uh, We should recognize that you could do use-inspired science, which is uh, a way to think about basic science, but focusing on a particular real world problem. And over the 20 years of my career, that's moved from an idea on the fringes to now something where even the National Science Foundation is using that language in their proposals. And I think because of that, uh, students are more accepting of the NDM model because what I uh, started interacting with human factors and cognitive engineering and I had been reading about use-inspired science back around 2001, I think is when I first uh, was introduced to the concept. I realized that's what you all were doing. That's what these people were doing. They were doing use-inspired science. They were trying to solve real world problems, but using the appropriate methods and tools to solve complex cognition problems in the real world. And I think that that resonates a lot more easily with students these days than it did 20 years ago when I started. So we want to start to wrap up with uh, with a bit of a fun question. Um, but for you, we, we have something a, a bit different than what we've been doing with others because, uh, again, in, in my experience, you're the kind of uh, person who's, uh, who's eager to uh, drop a name in terms of f- uh, famous philosophers. So I want you to drop a couple now. Um, so if you could uh, have uh, pick any three philosophers, one of them has to be a student, one of them has to be a collaborator and one has to be a mentor. Who would those three be? Student, a mentor, and a collaborator. Uh, who would I take as a collaborator? I think I would take Plato. <laughs> um, so when I was still in business school, before I was getting my degree in marketing, I read Plato's Allegory of the Cave, I read Plato's Republic, uh, and the Plato's Allegory of the Cave blew me away and stuck with me. And you know, I was just amazed that people were thinking about these kinds of questions thousands of years ago. And um, I, I've if you're not familiar with Plato's Allegory of the Cave, it's it's very symbolic on, on many levels. It has to do with ignorance and our understanding of reality. And he sets it up very nicely to help us understand that we really have no sense of what reality is. We may think we do, but we have no true understanding. And I, I always liked the way he thought about that problem. And it turns out that it resonates quite well with um, embodied cognition theories in the sense that um, embodied cognition has to do with the way our sensory organs, the way the sensory system with which we've been endowed really drives all of cognition for us. And 
we as humans and we as researchers tend to forget that fact and it's a very important one because everything we understand about the world is based upon the sensory system with which we've been endowed and you know we forget the fact that we only see a small array of the electromagnetic spectrum that is visual light and prior to a century ago we didn't even understand much about anything beyond uh, the visual part of the spectrum and because of that all of cognition was based upon what we could see and hear when the fact is that there's other animals other organisms that can sense and perceive all of this other forms of energy out in the environment and this is critical because this fact shapes the way we think about the world it shapes our mind and i think plato was onto this thousands of years ago and realized it so i i would like to have him as a collaborator and i think when it comes to a mentor i'd go back to uh, the person i mentioned earlier sean gallagher uh, he is the one who introduced me to this line of thinking coming out of philosophy and he's the reason i'm in a philosophy department because we we're starting a cognitive science program at ucf uh, he wrote a book how the body shapes the mind so he has the he has been thinking about this for a number of years now and the point of that book was exactly what i just said that uh, the body itself and the interactions this body has with the world is really what shapes the mind but most of us view the mind as this privileged thing that shapes us where the argument from the body cognition is it's the other way around and the the, the point is that brains were developed as control systems for bodies and the body is what existed before the brain we have today and we lose sight of that fact and the quote i just gave leads to um another philosopher andy clark um and he's the one who has been very prominent and he's kind of a what we refer to as a rock star in academia so you'll see him written up in the New York Times and all the major uh, popular press science. So he wrote Natural Born Cyborgs, a book in the early 2000s that talked about the degree to which humans seamlessly integrate with technology. And he pointed out all the different ways that technology changes us. So he's had a huge influence on my thinking. And I think having someone like him as a student would be mind boggling. Uh, because he would be continually questioning any assumption and he, he is able to see things about the relationship between technology and cognition that I don't think many people can. And it would be fun to start designing experiments. And I put him up there as a student because he just published um, last year, I think it was, one of the first tests of what we refer to as extended cognition theory and it ended up getting published in Nature. Uh, so it just goes to show you that, you know, these are very influential thinkers who are uh, shaping our understanding of cognition by pointing out the very fact that uh, you can't separate the body, the brain, and the environment. You need to see the degree to which they're integrated to really appreciate cognition and understand cognition from this broader perspective. Awesome. I think that will be the one and only time we use this fun question because I'm not quite sure anybody else would uh, would be able to populate those three roles quite as well as you have. Um, so this has been really awesome, Steve. Thank you for uh, walking us down the journey and uh, and showing us all the different paths. 
and uh, and talking with us today. It's really been a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully we can do it. Hopefully we can do it over beer at the next NDM conference. Right. That'd be great. Well, thank you very much for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. 